Hi, and welcome to today's edition of Back to the Bible Canada. I'm Ben Lowell, and today Dr. John Newfeld is going to continue his Bible teaching in Romans chapter 2, talking about how God will judge the world. This teaching will be influential in showing us how sin and salvation impacts our lives. So let's open our Bibles to Romans chapter 2 and join Dr. Newfeld. In the year 1927, African-American pastor James Weldon Johnston wrote a series of seven poems, or they could be sermons as well, depending on how you look at them. These poems include a poem on creation, it has one on the crucifixion of Christ, and the last one is a poem on Judgment Day. These poems or sermons are highly imaginative and creative and give us a sense of some of the great truths of the Bible, and they have excited imaginations ever since. I I commend them to you. They are called God's Trombones. Let me quote to you from the final poem, which is simply entitled, The Judgment Day. In that great day, people in that great day, gods are going to rain down fire. Gods are going to sit in the middle of the air to judge the quick and the dead. Early one of these mornings, gods are going to call for Gabriel. And gods are going to say to him, Gabriel, blow your silver trumpet and wake the living nations. And Gabriel's going to ask him, Lord, how loud must I blow it? And God's going to tell him, Gabriel, blow it calm and easy. Then putting one foot on the mountaintop and the other in the middle of the sea, Gabriel's going to stand and blow his horn and wake the living nations. Then God's going to say to him, Gabriel, once more blow your silver trumpet and wake the nations underground. And Gabriel's going to ask him, Lord, how loud must I blow it? And God's going to tell him, Gabriel, like seven peals of thunder. Then the tall, bright angel Gabriel will put one foot on the battlements of heaven and the other on the steps of hell and blow the silver trumpet till he shakes old hell's foundations. Let me skip ahead right to the end. O sinner, where will you stand on that day when gods are going to rain down fire? O you gambling man, where will you stand? You whoremongering man, where will you stand? Liars and backsliders, where will you stand in that great day when gods are going to rain down fire? You know, we need to recapture an image of the great day of judgment. The book of Revelation presents us with a picture of the great white throne and the one who is seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence. Nothing in all creation could sustain the awesome and holy splendor. The dead, the great ones of the earth and the common ordinary people will all be assembled to stand before him. And then in a spectacle that is both magnificent and terrifying, books will be opened which contain the deeds of every single human being. Jesus said that the things that have been done in secret will be shouted from the housetops. All secrets and all things done in public will be examined both in terms of the thing done itself and the secret motivation behind every single action. Nothing will be omitted. That's why Pastor James Weldon Johnson asked, where are you going to stand? We've been studying the book of Romans, and we've noticed that Paul has declared that the wrath of God is already breaking into the present experience of the entire human race. But that present experience is but a foretaste of that great day still to come. And so moving from the present experience to the great final day, Paul invites all of us both to ask and to answer, especially in the light of our sin, where are we going to stand? Let's listen to Romans 2, 6 to 11. 
He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. I wonder, especially if you're paying close attention to what has just been read, that you feel like something's wrong with this passage. Because reading it as it stands straight up makes it sound like the person who is saved from the wrath to come is the person who does good, and the person who's condemned is the person who does evil. See, at the outset, we might wonder if Paul's actually contradicting himself, because here he seems to be saying that salvation is on the basis of works, and later, for instance, in Romans 3.20, Paul will emphatically deny this as a possibility. He will say, no human being will be justified by works of the law. So if we were going to rewrite verse 6, I think most of us would probably change it from saying, he will render each one according to his works, to say, he will render each one according to his faith. But that's not what Paul says. So what's going on? And for that matter, what's going to happen on Judgment Day? If we go back to the scene that the Apostle John paints in the end of Revelation, the scene before the great white throne, we're going to find that John is very clear. On Judgment Day, humankind will be judged on the basis of what they have done. Judgment is an examination of our works. Every deed, every action, every thought, every intent, even all things left undone, will be carefully scrutinized and objectively judged. It's altogether terrifying. Even the things forgotten or the things that we did that we reinterpreted to put us in the best possible light will be understood for what they truly are. Now, if we're looking for an explanation to this clear teaching in the Bible and how we can harmonize that with the good news of the gospel, the answer is actually quite simple. We are judged on the basis of our works, but we are saved from judgment on the basis of faith. I'm going to repeat that for emphasis. We're judged on the basis of works, and we're saved on the basis of faith. We'll come back and explain that fully as we go through this passage, but I think we're ready to dive into this text. Please notice that verses 6 and 7 will give us the character qualities of those who are going to heaven. Verse 8 will give us the character qualities of those going to hell. And then verse 9 will give us a description of hell. And verse 10, a description of heaven. And then in verse 11, Paul will give us the basis for God's judgment. So let's start at the beginning. Here we see the character qualities of those who are going to heaven. You want another way of saying that? What does a person who is saved actually look like? Let's listen to verse 7 again. Those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. In other words, those who faithfully carry on in glory, honor, and immortality, they are the ones who are going to go to heaven. Please notice what Paul doesn't say. He doesn't tell us how those who get to heaven became patient in well-doing, seeking for glory, honor, and immortality, nor does he say that having these characteristics earn you a spot in heaven. So as you read this, don't put words in the apostle's mouth. They're not found in the text. All he says is that those who are patient in seeking for glory, honor, and immortality, that category of people, well, that's the very same category of people who get eternal life. If you want to know how they earn or deserve heaven, 
The answer is not found here. You have to read Romans 3 to find out that they don't earn heaven at all. Christ actually earns it for them. And if you want to know how these people become this way, you actually have to wait all the way to chapters 5 to 8 to have Paul explain that to us. But for now, can we just notice that the entire book of Romans will make it plain that no one got these qualities by trying hard or by law-keeping or by works or by good breeding or by cultivating the right attitudes or by anything else that we can accomplish. What Paul describes here, he will later describe as coming as the result of grace, a gift from God. God, in his great love, will give to his elect, those destined for heaven, a gift, regeneration. That gift is that people will be transformed so that they become patient in seeking glory, honor, and immortality. So let's take time to understand these three qualities. First of all, those who go to heaven are patient in seeking glory. Of course, Paul does not mean seeking their own glory. No one going to heaven seeks that. Imagine for a moment that you asked me why I spent the time speaking on Back to the Bible every day, and my answer, my motivation, was that everyone in Canada would know who I am. Now, if that were the case, you'd have every reason to despise me. But if I truly answered from the very core of my being that my motivation was so that everyone in Canada would know who Christ is, you would indeed be meeting the kind of a person who is going to heaven. I hope we understand what this means. To be patient in seeking glory is to be patient in seeking Christ to be honored in all things. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. In other words, to make known God's fame, God's greatness, God's magnificence and splendor, that's what drives us along. We need to make him known. We seek to make him known, that he be praised and honored for everything and in everything. Now, I know we're not perfect in this matter. We ignore it sometimes, but this is our life's desire. It has, by the grace of God, been deeply embedded in us. That's the first character qualification of those who are going to heaven. When we come back, we're going to look at the other two. When considering the Judgment Day, it's easy for the Darth Vader theme song to pop into our heads. However, Dr. Neufeld mentioned that we are judged on the basis of works and saved on the basis of faith. This is an encouraging reminder that if we've accepted the free gift of eternal life from Jesus, that we're spending forever with him in heaven. After the break, we'll continue talking about the qualities of people who go to heaven. Thanks so much for listening today. You know, you're invited to join Dr. John Newfeld and Phil Calloway and all of our ministry guests on the Back to the Bible Laugh Again Caribbean cruise this March 22nd to the 29th aboard the Freedom of the Seas. This will be a time of laughter, relaxation, and spiritual refreshment. But time for registering is coming to a close, so call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us online at backtothebible.ca. Now let's rejoin Dr. Neufeld in Romans chapter 2. Now the second character, quality. We've said that those who go to heaven are patient in seeking glory. Now Paul adds, those who go to heaven are patient in seeking for honor. 
Now, it may be that the word honor refers to the honor that should go to God and his son Jesus. And if that's the point that Paul means here, that simply would be reemphasizing the previous point. Those going to heaven seek glory, but Paul might also be saying that those going to heaven are patient in seeking to be honored themselves. But if that's what Paul has in mind, he doesn't mean being honored before people. Remember, Jesus promised that if we follow him, people may despise us, even persecute us, or speak evil against us. By the way, if you want a great name in this world, might I suggest that Christianity is not your best option? Honor, if it is accorded to us, will come from God, who's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a little. I'll put you in charge of much. Those who are going to heaven have been faithful to their Savior. And then, Paul says, those who go to heaven are patient in seeking for immortality. Wow. This passage states that the highest desire for the true believer rests not here in this world, but in the one to come. So the true believer seeks glory for God, honor in the life to come, immortality, a life forever before God, an eternal life, a quality of life so rich and full that even death itself can't destroy it. Again, let's be clear, the text does not teach that we are perfect or sinless or without blame, only that every true believer would gladly abandon every earthly thing for heaven. If it becomes illegal to preach the gospel and the state threatens us with prison, we will preach the gospel because we would gladly lose this world, but we will not lose the next one. If God says give financially, we would gladly even impoverish ourselves in this world so that we can gain the next. If God says, follow me onto the mission field, fine. It may be hard. It might mean that I deny myself of something I'd love to have here. I might even be called to lay down my life now, but I am gunning for eternity. The heart of the transformed person is that they have their eye on the long term. That's the way we look at it. And that's the description of those who go to heaven. Now, says Paul, let's have a look at those who are on the other side of the fence. Let's look at, if you can bear this, the character qualities of those who are going to hell. I know that in the popular imagination of most people in our day, hell is reserved for murderers, rapists, the absolute worst of us. That's why verse 8 seems so unsettling. But those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, they will be wrath and fury. Now, three phrases are used here. The first is the description of the person who is self-seeking. It's the same kind of an idea as a mercenary. You know, a mercenary will do anything for money, will go to war for money, will harm anyone for money. Now, a self-seeking individual is not necessarily someone who seeks to harm others, but a self-seeking individual is constantly looking to please himself or herself. He or she will go to whatever it takes to get something for themselves here. For some people, it's fame. For others, it's pleasure. It may be prestige or or sex or mastery in sports or an education that puts one in a position of respect. It may be power. Or it might carry with it dark desires that do include harm of others. But what drives all of these things forward is the desire to please self. And that, by the way, is why so many people buy lottery tickets. I wish I had all the money in the world so I could please myself. That's why certain people do the jobs they do, and that's why others turn down the jobs they do. It's what causes some people to go to war and what causes others to stay home. It's all driven by an idol, a god, and that god is self. It's the great inner motivator. Now, the second phrase Paul uses, these people do not obey the truth. 
And all sorts of people will say, I believe the truth. I don't reject the truth, but do you obey the truth? Now, what truth is Paul referring to? And it clearly means the truth about God. According to Romans 1, we owe God an infinite debt of gratitude, and our gratitude eventually works out to submitting our will to his, surrender, obedience, not to men, but to God. And then comes this phrase, they obey unrighteousness. You know, one Bible teacher said, no person lives in a moral or spiritual vacuum. He or she is either godly or ungodly, either righteous or unrighteous. In other words, there simply is no spiritual neutrality. And the picture is simple. On Judgment Day, every single human being will be evaluated. Which group do they belong to? Are they self-seeking or do they seek God's fame? Do they obey the truth or do they obey unrighteousness? On that day, as African-American Pastor Johnson said so well, where are you going to stand on that great day? And then just so that we understand what's really at stake, Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, gives us a very brief description of hell. Verse 9 reads, There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. Earlier in verse 8, Paul added two more words, wrath and fury. Wrath is a strongest kind of anger. Tribulation can be translated as trouble or living under great pressure. Distress comes from a Greek word, the root of which speaks of sighing or groaning or even extreme sorrow or even the sense of a great weight that has fallen upon us. Interestingly enough, the word comes from the root that means to be in a narrow place in which you're wedged in, no escape. You can think of being trapped in a collapsed building, no way out. And if you put all these words together, Paul describes hell as a place of great anger, and this anger results in an objective reality. That objective reality is suffering. But that suffering, says Paul, leads to a subjective or an experiential reality, and that reality leads you to a feeling of being trapped in a sorrow that is greater than you can bear. That's why Judgment Day is so frightening. This, says Paul, is a very real prospect. You can die in peace and not know that this is what awaits. I have a very clear memory. A number of years ago, there was a grocery store up from a hill where I was pastoring, and it was lunchtime, and I would always uh, go up the hill, and on that day, it was a glorious, beautiful spring day. And as I was walking up the hill to the grocery store, I came upon red lights of police cars and an ambulance. It turns out that a motorcyclist had turned left when he shouldn't have and was hit by an oncoming car, and he was pronounced dead at the scene. He was a young man who had no doubt gotten up on that morning and gotten onto his bike on that beautiful spring day to enjoy the glory of nature, not knowing that he was minutes away from stepping into eternity. Life is full of surprises. You never really know when you're going to round a corner and absolutely nothing you thought of as being usual and normal will ever be the same. See, that's what eternity presents us with. We round a corner and the opening of a future that we never would have anticipated is there. And Paul says it can turn out the other way, however. And he gives us a brief description of heaven. Verse 10 says, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. I mean, look at the contrast from the previous verse. Glory, honor, peace contrasted with all the other stuff that was there. Imagine the first day after death, an individual stepping in heaven. Yes, that person will run into the outstretched arms of Jesus, and I can hardly wait. But, says Paul, for all eternity, you're going to live in a glory and an honor and in a peace. 
If you only grasped the glory that lies ahead, it would eclipse the best day you ever had on this earth. For the sake of what lies ahead, a man or a woman will gladly abandon every earthly pleasure so that they might have that one. And that's the invitation. Do you want it? Will you do anything to have it? And where are you going to stand on that great day? It's my prayer that you would join me and stand with a company of the redeemed and stand before Jesus and look at him and say, thank you for saving me. Thanks, Dr. Neufeld, I think. Uh, this has been uh, quite a conversation, quite a message you've given us today. And, and as you've spoken, you know, I don't know, my fear quotient has gone up and it's gone down and I've been a little bit all over the place. But, you know, I'm wondering if some people feel like uh, they're motivated to make a decision for Christ based upon uh, heaven and hell. Uh, what do you think God thinks about that? I know that uh, when I came to Christ, the, uh, the, the real possibility of hell lying before me did play into my thinking. I don't think it does anymore simply because I have known the the peace and the kindness of God, but it did motivate me. Ben, I actually think that we sometimes in the church have this pendulum. Sometimes we never speak of hell and sometimes we only speak of hell. And I think both are wrong. I think we probably live in a day where hell is mentioned quite infrequently. I'm going to guess that many young people have never heard a sermon on hell in their lives. And uh, we tell each other that we shouldn't do that because we've had this hellfire and brimstone stuff. I'm going to guess the next generation has never actually heard one of those sermons. So I think uh, we need to find the kind of balance that the Bible gives us. And uh, it certainly portrays the reality of hell and tells us to do everything we can to avoid it. John, I know there's so many people out there who just can't balance off the idea of a God of love and a place like hell. I know, I know. I'm the, the time doesn't allow us to discuss this fully, but I think that we need to develop a view of God that includes both of these things. Both the love and wrath of God have to be in our understanding of God, because if it's not, we're simply creating a God of our own imaginations, and I think that's important. Thanks so much, John, and we look forward to our message tomorrow. Today's teaching has left us with a lot to think about. Maybe at the end of this message, you're concerned about your own eternity. You've heard about the kind of people who go to heaven and a brief picture of hell. So now what? Well, for me, to use Dr. Neufeld's words, I'm gunning for heaven. But where will you stand? Tomorrow, Dr. Neufeld will provide us some answers on how to succeed on Judgment Day. So stay tuned, and I hope you'll join us for tomorrow's edition of Back to the Bible Canada. At Back to the Bible Canada, it's our mission to connect people to God through the power of His Word. How do we do this, you ask? Well, broadcasting on 62 radio outlets across the country more than 1,000 times every month. And utilizing innovative online email and mobile technologies, Back to the Bible Canada is accessible virtually to every ear from coast to coast to coast. In order to continue this mission of Bible teaching and re-engaging a lost generation with the truth of the Bible, we need to ask for your help. 
January and February can be two of the most fiscally challenging months of the year, a time, quite honestly, that can truly challenge our resources. So each and every gift we receive this month means so much for today and for the days and weeks ahead. I want to thank you in advance for all you do and will continue to do. We're so blessed to have your support. To donate today, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day.